According to the 2019 Healthy Mind Survey, 15% of college students revealed they had thoughts about suicide. College life presents challenges that go way beyond academics, including financial struggles, a lack of mental health resources, the journey of self-discovery and career choices, social pressures, and concerns about campus safety, all of which contribute to the difficulties many students face. Welcome to Normalize the Conversation. I'm your host, Francesca Reigeter, and today I'm joined by licensed clinical psychologist and founder of Ascension Behavioral Health, Dr. Ayana Abrams. In this episode, we explore the stress and mental health challenges faced by college students, specifically from marginalized communities. Join us as we unravel the complex web of issues from concerns over campus safety to the hurdles of funding and accessibility of mental health treatment. Thank you so much for joining me today. I am really excited for our conversation. But before we begin, I really just want to check in with you. How are you really? I like that question. I like the really part of it. Like, don't lie to me. Don't lie to me. Um, Today, I am well, mainly because I actually ate breakfast today. So I have some some energy about me. Um, lunch is a different story, but I know that I'll be able to make it to the end of my caseload without getting tired. So I'm actually doing, I'm, I'm all right today. We're, we're having a good day. We're having a good day. I love that. It makes such a difference when you have breakfast. Such a difference. I didn't realize that until the other day. I don't know what I was doing that I was so busy that I skipped like my favorite meal of the day. But I did. And it was all of a sudden, it was like 4 p.m. And I was like, I have not eaten a single thing. I am so tired. I think I slept for like well over like 16 hours after that. I was so tired. Breakfast, so important. It is a it is a game changer. And it sets up the rest of my day, particularly if I make time to make breakfast. Um, it sets up my day better versus like waking up and like rolling over and jumping on the computer. So <laughs> it's also about structure for me um, that really helps. So today I made it. So we're good to go. Love that. It really structure is so important. And I'm learning that more and more as I'm currently doing my master's in clinical psychology right. Right. and trying to run a nonprofit and doing a podcast, trying to take on all these different roles, being a caregiver. And that structure is so important for my mental health because- yeah. Without it, my brain is just trying to comprehend everything all at once. And there is so much stress happening in each and every portion of it that I cannot be any form of productive. There's just so much data. There's just like, and and while I am, I think when I was in graduate school, there was Facebook, um, but there wasn't all this other stuff. I am so glad there was not this other stuff when I was there. It's just, it is just so much data to move through and to be stimulated by that. Yeah, structure is key without being overstructured and kind of over itinerized, but having some kind of structure for your life is super, super key. Oh, yes. And I love what you said about not overstructure because I tried that. So that I was like, I need some kind of structure, some kind of something because the academic pressure and stress was too much and life felt way overwhelmed. So overwhelming. So I tried to like account for every moment of my day. And if I didn't have my cup of tea at like 10 a.m. on the dot, I was like, that's it. Like the world is ending. I would feel so stressed out because I wanted every single minute accounted for. I thought if I could account for every second of my day, then everything would be exactly as I wanted. And let me tell you, my dog would bark and want to go outside at the wrong time. 
the wrong time. Of course it's the wrong time. Of course it's the wrong time. Or my teacher would send an email about like an assignment that popped up and I was like, I don't have that planned into my calendar. Oh no. So that's when structure turns into rigidity and then we get some other issues with that. So that's why I always say like semi-structure tends to work best for most people. So yeah, it really does. And I know today we're going to talk a lot about mental health in the college environment experience. And we're going to specifically touch on marginalized communities. But I think really starting with how much our mental health is impacted by all that's going on, about all these different pieces of pressure and stress. I mean, academic relationships, figuring out who we are, our identity. I mean, we're supposed to know at like 17, 18 years old what career we want and be working toward that day one. It's a lot. Yeah. And it is. And for for many people, it it is insurmountable. It is daunting. There's not a roadmap for this. Right. So, you know, students come into this place, one, um, with the the notion or kind of the fantasy of the best, how many ever years of your life? So for, you already got that. Um, and then depending on what it took for them to get there based on access or privilege or location and all those kinds of things, it really shifts how they experience those first few days, those first few weeks on campus. And if, and if they're on campus, if they're commuting, there's all these different factors. Um, and the with this kind of overarching goal of like, you need to do it right. And that there's a right way to do this um, is really overwhelming for people, although it sounds um, like that could kind of offer some kind of structure. It becomes a lot more pressure to do this the right way by grades, by relationships, um, by socializing in a different way. Like you said, that identity piece is huge. Finding yourself, learning yourself, making mistakes, like all that kind of stuff is just a lot to weigh on, not only in those years, but that exists across our lifespan, but it gets kind of truncated into these four years about how all those things are supposed to be figured out by the time that, and if it is four years, but that all those things are supposed to be figured out by the time that you are done. And then you should just be ready for like the world. And I'm just like, are you serious? Like, are you who, who, right? So, um, and all that stuff is, is, you know, when I work with um, college students in therapy, these are all the things that are always coming up day in and day out, day in and day out. And just how under that is mental health and under all of these decisions are um, uh, are things related to their identity. So we're always coming back into those same themes about how to care for themselves and how to care for these different aspects of their identity, how to learn about some of those aspects of their identity so that their decisions are more value-based. Right. So it's kind of aligning with who they want to be, um, who they believe that they are um, and how to kind of make sure and how to recreate or kind of create a world um, uh, where that is just in fuller alignment for them. Yeah. You know, I have to say this past week, a week ago, I turned 25. Mm. I thought that by this point in my life, I would have everything figured out. I the best four years of my life were behind me and I was going to have a career, be married, be getting ready to have kids. Like I just had this whole idea in my head based on really what prior generations had said and fed the messaging, right? Um, My grandmother, she had two kids by the time she was my age, which she pointed out on my birthday. Thank you for that, Nana. Love that. Right? But it's like this whole idea in my head of what life was supposed to be. And then getting to this point, it's like, okay, if college, like undergrad was the best like time of my life, that honestly sucks because I worked 50 hours a week through undergrad, did 4 a.m. shifts at Panera, closing shifts at Build-A-Bear. So fun, by the way. Like I did so much things that felt 
overwhelming. I felt like I didn't sleep, that I didn't get a lot of socialization in, especially those undergrad years. And turning 25 hit that like everything you just said, that was all the pressure I felt that entire day. I got to the point where I was on the floor just like crying in this like, why am I not where I need to be or where I should be? Like realistically, like, first of all, a big part of my adult 20 years was a pandemic. Very important piece. Um, No one was hiring, by the way, at that point. So even if that was the time I was going to go into a job instead of another grad program, it was not a very easy time. But again, this idea, this stress that everything has to be figured out and structured that the day you go into undergrad, the day you graduate, this is where you need to be really like hit me. Like, again, I can't stress how much that hit me last week, which is why I'm so excited for this conversation, because it's a lot. It's just a lot. And it's quite frankly too much, right? So we see it kind of take a toll on mental health and transform itself into um, anxiety, into depressive symptoms, right? Into a lot of relationship issues, right? It unearths, right? Or kind of reveals a lot of family issues. Like there's just all this stuff that comes up um, that can get really activated um, and during kind of this period of time. And a lot of it is related to uh, these shoulds and a lot of these fantasies, right? About what this is supposed to be like. And then we're doing all this work, right, to kind of get to whatever that thing is, right, based on, um, again, either our parents or kind of caregivers' experiences, based on possibly their older siblings or older cousins' experiences, whatever we're taking in from the media, how our peers are experiencing things. Um, and it really makes it difficult to forge your own path and to believe that that path is okay and that yeah. that path right, even as it will have its bumps, right? We are we are in a, that, that thing's been a, a a time period we've been in for a while um, where things not going a certain way are kind of seen as more blemishes or he did something wrong because something took longer. It's, it's all related to kind of perfectionism, right? We're trying to control for all these things as a means to manage our anxiety about stuff or as a means to manage our parents' anxiety about stuff, right? So oftentimes students are coming in not with their own goals or ideas or coming in, well, this is what I'm supposed to be doing right and when i work with um and as i work with a lot of students who are in who are parts of um marginalized communities and marginalized identities there are these roles right that they feel like they need to play because i'm holding up my whole culture i'm holding up my whole family i might be the first one right who was here who was in this place who has access to this so it does need to look a certain way because there's so much riding on me doing this a certain way and me getting this job afterwards or making this, you know, the six figures that people think are going to save them, right, to make all these kinds of things that come up. Um, and those are the things that become really loud, really, really loud. And it's very difficult to silence all of that pressure while also learning things, right? You are still, your brain is still not fully developed, right, until you are mid-20s, yet you are expected to be this full-blown adult who does everything right and gets everything right. It's just we're going to go many different directions, right? But it's just, it's just so much more of that. It is. And that family aspect is huge. Mm -hmm. And first of all, I recently talked to someone, I recorded a podcast with someone in India and we talked about the difference between that collectivist and individualist society. And I grew up in a family that was pretty well off that I was never really stressed about anything. Going into college, I was not stressed about if I couldn't get a job afterwards, where am I going to live? Am I going to have food? 
did I do my best to work and try to earn as much as I could while I was there so I didn't have to rely solely on my parents? Absolutely. But at the same time, I was never too stressed and overwhelmed about, oh no, what if I let this person down? Oh no, what if I don't get that job right away? So for me, a lot of the stress that exists is stuff I put on myself, but not very realistic to what a lot of people are going through. So I've been so blessed and so lucky, which is why I'm really passionate about having this conversation because that is so not realistic. And I've struggled so much with my mental health, having this extra cushion behind me. Yeah. Yeah. Right. That what you are naming is ways and, you know, privilege doesn't necessarily remove all hardship, right. In ways. Right. But um, for those who don't have certain privileges, whether it be financial privilege, um, whether it be mobility, right, privilege, whether it be um, social privileges in these ways, the experience um, of two-year institutes or four-year institutes can be remarkably different, right, down to, you know, things that, that you know, typically kind of come up in the first few weeks, right? I'm thinking about students who are moving into dorms and they begin comparing, right, what they are bringing, literally, they're comparing what they're bringing into what their roommates have? Do you have decorations of stuff? Do you have pictures of family that you put up around your room, right? That depending on what my life circumstance is, I don't have pictures of people to put up around the room. Um, What kind of clothes do roommates have? Do they have computers? Like all these other things that show up. When I say that first day of moving in and now um, in these past, probably not past few years, I'm a little bit older, um, but now um, in this way in which you can meet your roommates like beforehand, when you're talking about things to bring, like, so there's like a Facebook group and all these ways in which um, uh, students can connect with each other before they're moving in. It also starts even right there, like who's bringing what? And it's just like, uh, who can bring what versus who's bringing what? And just kind of what that means and how that factors into, again, identity, access, socioeconomic status, location, all these different kinds of things that's already weighing on students, Right. Who am I going to be? What are people going to think of me, right? If I don't look a certain way, if I can't dress a certain way, if I don't have this kind of computer, right? All these things also then impact how they experience being on campus and getting to know new people. There's a lot of social anxiety that's there about being accepted, being liked, feeling like you have a sense of belonging, right, in these communities. Yes, that initial, oh my God, brings me back to that first day when I got matched with my roommates. And I remember mm-hmm. the very first thing I did was look up their social media profiles to try to like assume what their personality would be and try to figure out who they were and if they would like me and would I need to change a piece of who I am so that they would like me. Who did they You're like to hang out with? Doing that. You're spending all summer now, right? All summer doing, doing that. that. Yeah, it's a yeah. lot of pressure. Yes. And then that point of like, figuring out what we're going to bring. And I remember I was in charge of pots and pans and I was freaking out at the store. Like I have to make sure they're good pots and pans, right? They're good enough. Which ones do I get? And I knew nothing about like kitchen cookware. I just used whatever my parents had, but like I knew nothing about it. And I was like, is this too cheap? Is this too expensive? What does this mean? Like I tried to overanalyze the price tag on a pan. Look at that, right? Because there's this part about what is this, what might this say or kind of represent about yes. me? And again, as we, as we move through the world in general, you know, regardless of, um, you know, college institutions or dorm life or not, oftentimes because we are social beings, right? We want to be liked. We want to be seen. We want to feel connected. We want people to um, like us. We want people to feel impressed by us. Um, so that's not going to go away, but we're looking at the threshold of that because it's the threshold of that um, that then begins to impact our mental health. 
right? So yes, I want to, you know, show up in a way in which um, I feel respected by people. I feel like people can attend and attach to me in these ways. I feel like there's a good, you know, flow um, between us. But when that becomes my guiding force, right, that I need to do things in order to be liked, we get more and more disconnected from ourselves. It's less about a concern about whether we like ourselves. And if we're doing things that feel in alignment with our values, or our goals, it becomes kind of this beeline, right, of how can I make people like me? Um, and a lot of us, adults included, right, still having a really, really difficult time accepting and believing that you can't make people like you. You could do all the research on the pot to bring, whether it's Caraway or Away or whether it's Ikea, and you might still come across somebody who's just like, oh, never. I only do, you know, ceramic something from wherever it is, right? You're going to come across people who are different from you and trying to control for that really does lead to a lot, a lot, a lot of anxiety. Um, and I think when in coming into this, um, you know, uh, transitional kind of independence space of, like I said, more than likely a four-year institution where you're in a, a dorm setting, um, it brings up a lot of those things, right? These are not people who you went to school with. These are not people who you've been able to kind of, you know, maybe kind of build up a reputation for the last five to 10 to 18 years of being in the same school system with them. And now I'm doing all this work in the first few weeks to try to convince everybody that I'm, you know, the cool kid on the floor and I'm this and I'm this and I have this and start school and adjust to making all these decisions by yourself and like, oh, I've got to do my laundry oh, I've got to remember to go to the dining hall and eat alarm and make it to class on time, right? Yeah. And oh my goodness, my first time doing laundry, I had no idea how to do my own laundry. Like no idea um, about laundry detergent. I remember one of the kids on my floor, he's like one of my best friends to this day. His name's John. Hey, John, for listening. Um, he saw me looking at the machine so confused and was like, you don't know what you're doing, do you? And I was like, I really don't. I had tears in my eyes. I was like call, trying to get on the phone with my grandparents. They weren't answering to tell me what to do. And he sat there and he like explained to me how you measure out like the detergent the into the pour. thing. Yeah. And then he taught me about like the pods that you can put in so you don't have to measure every time. Love that. And yes. that became our thing the entire year was doing our laundry together. So we would always go and do it together just in case I had a question and eventually I got used to it and it wasn't very difficult. But that was so difficult for me and that realization that, oh my goodness, I have almost zero life skills at this point. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I'm thrust into this, right? Um, this space where it's also expected that I will take care of myself, right? I'm um, expected that I would do this well and or expected that I should have known this already. I think gender factors into those things. I remember um, that when I was in my first um, uh, dorm, a lot of the students who identified as, you know, women or femme would be helping, right? A lot of the male students, right? Because there's just something, you don't know what you're doing. You don't know how to do this, right? You're paying. But I had to know how to do this. So we would see this dynamic play out um, in the laundry room, right? About who was there, what time, whose clothes were always stuck in the dryer because you didn't come back and take them out because you forgot them. Um, so those kinds of things that we were already seeing, but that was you know, this example, this experience of this life skill transition for a lot of students that maybe they didn't know anything about. 
can imagine what it was. And, and again, I also um, grew up in um, a privileged enough financial circumstance, right, where I had used washing machines before. I'd had personal washing machines um, in my home. I had a parent who had taught me about washing and separating colors and all those things. Uh, but what if you didn't grow up in a circumstance where you had laundry in the home and you were used to going to a laundromat? Sometimes they, they might actually have more skill, right, because they would go to a laundromat, right? But what does it mean in terms of assumptions that people make? about people who have laundromats versus people who can afford a wash and dryer in the home. There are all these different things that would come up oftentimes silently, right, for a lot of students and thinking about how they are perceived um, uh, based on these, what we might consider really benign circumstances, right? But these different things hold meaning for a lot of people. I remember even in our, um, because I went to to undergrad in a very cold, snowy place of Syracuse, um, we had these kind of underground tunnels um, to get to um, sometimes the dining halls or to get to the laundry areas because it's cold outside and it's snowy. So we needed to have some way to still kind of get, uh, which you don't experience at all in California, right? But it's very, very different. Like you're like underground tunnels. Yes, because it's six feet of snow outside. So we still got to fake it out there. Um, and, you know, different things around accessibility. So were the elevators always working, right? So that students who, uh, um, you know, couldn't always take the stairs, make it down there? No. Um, you always had to have coins on you. What did that mean in terms of um, uh, accessibility? Um, for any students who had any other kind of injuries, right? What did that mean in terms of accessibility and just mobility to get to these places? Um, so thinking about, and those were not things that were on my mind then, but those are things that I think about now when I work with um, different students. What kinds of accommodations are there? Do they have support? Um, you know, students who have chronic pain, right, moving up and down in those ways if the elevator is not working, right? What do those things mean and what are the implications, right, for them to be able to, to care for themselves in the way that's expected when there might not be systems in place to make sure that these things can happen for them? And that's just the norm. I'm not even talking about academics yet, right? Yeah. Exactly. There are not a lot of systems in place, not a lot of conversations about this either. And that was not something... I was thinking about when I went to college. Uh, it wasn't something that I don't think anyone in my close friend group was thinking about. We were thinking about what paintings we were going to go make and buy for our dorms, right? We were thinking about my first day, we didn't have a cookie sheet, but we had cookie dough and we wanted a cookie. Like that's what we were thinking about. How do we get a cookie sheet? And it's so true that there this experience is so different for so many people. And a lot of us often take for granted how, I don't say it's simple because it is not simple. Like I, it's, it was not simple for me and I was very, very lucky and privileged, but it's something that seems so relatively simple looking back on it that, I mean, just getting, I remember there were so many dorms that didn't have elevators. I remember the people who had walk-ups so you had to walk flights of stairs I remember refusing to go visit my friends who had those lots of stairs I was like that's so much effort come to me I'm on the first floor and I never thought about wow some people can't even go up the stairs and what accommodations really are being made why are we in the 2020s and still don't have elevators in every building mm -hmm. and ramps you know it makes it makes me think about um my my freshman dorm experience that, you know, the dorms are all over um, campus in Syracuse is a fairly, I guess, medium-sized campus. Um, and my particular dorm was at the bottom of the hill, essentially, right? And the bottom of the hill um, was more closer to the Syracuse neighborhood, which wasn't deemed as safe, right? As kind of other parts of Syracuse, or other parts of um, campus. So we had security 
we had 24 hour security. And even now thinking about, you know, the implications of what it means that as we're walking back to our dorms, we had to think about safety, right, in a different way, right, that maybe other students on campus didn't have to think about. So yes, we hear about buddy systems, which tend to be more gendered. They said all, you know, the women and femmes to have buddy systems, but they're not talking to other people about safety on campus and keeping people safe on campus, right? But but again, another right marginalized um, uh, identity um, piece that comes up. But in thinking about safety of getting back to my dorm at any kind of given day or night, like, oh, we got to walk down this, you know, dark hill down an underpass to get to our dorm day and night. And what are the implications of that? If somebody is navigating anxiety, if someone has a trauma history, right? All those things that might come up where this is supposed to be this place where you feel super safe, but we have 24 hour security because there's been violence down here before, right? So even like those kinds of things that again, I wasn't thinking about as much then um, in comparison to like the other dorms and the, um, there were also, there were like demographics, right? More of the students who were black and brown were actually put in those dorms. I mean, it was a whole other issue, but even the implications of things like that, like what does that mean in terms of safety on campus and um, who is protected and who is not protected and why they're protected and when they're protected, like all those kinds of things come up. I didn't have, um, uh, didn't have and don't have that particular trauma history, but I knew that there were students who did, who eventually needed to be moved because it's just like, hey, right, me having to think about this on the way to my home, right, while I'm on campus is way too much for me. I need to be put in a place, right, where the campus is already dubbed as safer, right, in these ways, because even just having security would activate, right, their anxiety, right? And then again, things that, that, in terms of a, a, a um, around mental health, having the privilege to not have those mental health struggles, but just even thinking about those kinds of things on our campuses. And that is such a common issue currently in all education settings, right? Is that sense of safety in a place where you're supposed, the biggest challenge really should be learning, right? And growing as a person, getting to explore all pieces of who you are and who you want to be has now become this fear of being safe. This fear of, am I even going to make it to class today or make it home from class today? And yet to see that we are not looking at safety enough. We're not looking at how uncomfortable people may feel trying to get home, trying to just get to their dorm or get to class. And on top of that, I remember one frat at my university that was kicked off a campus because there were issues and the big and I hate to say the word joke, but it was made as a joke to everyone. They thought it was funny. There was a song about how these guys would rape girls. You don't go to this frat, right? Mm-hmm. And I, there was the song for it. I do not remember the song for the life of me. The same school? But, no, because many schools, right, dealing yeah. with the same. Yeah. Yeah. And it's just so unfortunately normalized that this is what happens in college. This is what happens and figure out how to stay safe without seeing universities that are taking a good amount of money from us who couldn't probably afford to put in some extra security and safety features, not doing that, not making such a crucial step that would allow all of us a sense of safety, maybe not complete safety, but a better sense of safety to be able to catch our breaths enough to feel comfortable socializing, to feel comfortable going to class, to feel comfortable getting enough sleep at night. Right. And that that makes me think about even this larger, you know, conversation around um, 
marginalized populations and marginalized bodies and then thinking about that in terms of gender, right? Who gets the education around how to keep yourself safe? I mean, I still get that education now. Like I'm a runner and it's just like, hey, keep this on you. Keep this on you. Don't run at night. Don't run alone. Don't run early morning. Don't run with just two people. Don't run in a park. Don't right? Like do all these things to keep yourself safe. Keep yourself safe, right? And I understand that that is rooted in a gender dynamic, right? In terms of patriarchy, right? Where we've just accepted, right? That the streets are dangerous, for women. So you need to engage in all these precautions to make sure that you keep yourself safe from boys just being boys, right? So we get that education so, 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 so young, right? But that is what privilege and marginalization looks like, right? Oftentimes, the people who are who tend to be more marginalized are given all of these rules about what they need to be doing more to keep themselves safe, right? To do what they need to do, to fight the good fight, to do whichever it is, and the people who have more privileged identities are allowed to ignore that, right? They're allowed to kind of move around, right, in their world with a safety, right, of the ignorance that says, well, I don't have to worry about safety on campus. I'm a this, I'm a this, I'm an athlete, I'm a, right, so there's all those other kinds of privileges, right? Um, social privileges that are there that I get to move in the world like this, so I don't actually have to think about those things, as opposed to using my privilege and using my power to help those more marginalized students, right, to kind of help us have this larger conversation um, around that. Oftentimes, um, like I said, it is the the people who hold marginalized identities who are given all this extra labor to do, to think about and to figure out and to advocate for what they need in these kinds of environments. It blows my mind how we put so much responsibility on young kids, youth, young adults to figure out what to do with all the messaging of the world and society and to figure out what that means for them, how to keep themselves safe, how to be there for themselves, how to do this, how to do that. When there are so many opportunities as a whole that so many different factors and people can make to make things just a tad bit better. I'm not saying that there is a solution for everything that we can get rid of the patriarchy or the way that society has created that Men feel a lot safer than women. I'm not saying we need to get rid of that with like a snap of our fingers and there's one solution. But why is it constantly that women have to figure out to bring mace or to not walk alone or to not wear headphones? Like we live in a world where if we're going for a walk. We want to have our headphones and we want to be listening to music. I want to be listening to Taylor Swift. But do I get to do that versus can my brother do that? Why is it that women are constantly the ones being taught that we can't do things so that other people can feel like no power is taken from them or no control is put over them. That they don't have more work to do, right? Yeah. So they don't have to engage in the labor around this. Yeah. And that is something that's very, very consistent messaging on um, university campuses. I can't, I can't remember how many talks and I was on a, I was on a, it was a co-ed dorm, right? But I think about co-ed dorms and, um, different dorms in terms of um, uh, gender. But I remember our floor, we had a week's worth of conversations about keeping yourselves safe. And I'm just like, I don't know if this is happening on the floor above me or below me, right? The boys, yeah. floors, right? I was like, I'm pretty sure they're not getting all these flyers, all these pamphlets at the healthcare centers, not saying all these different things about this and cover your drink. And if you are going to drink, leave your drink right there. If you happen to go to the bathroom, like there were just all of these rules in addition to, but have fun but have fun, the greatest four years of your life, right? But just like always keep your head on swivel because 
so many things can happen. And if it happens, guess what? It's your fault. Like all these things, right? And that is, that is just in terms of gender. But then if you add in um, other marginalized identities in terms of race, in terms of religious minorities, in terms of disability, right? That that increases the risk, right? Of harm happening to you. Um, and just kind of adding all those things in is a labor that's really, really unfair, right? For marginalized populations to hold. And we hold it every day of our lives. Right? Yeah, yeah. And that messaging of it's your fault and your life is over because of it, right? This is the end. You did this to yourself and that's it. And that, I think, is the worst part, right? Is this feeling of not only are you supposed to blame yourself, but you're supposed to then shut down and hide and feel shameful for it over something that... And still do well and still function here you got to yeah. get over it enough to now kind of keep this thing going because you need to get this yeah. degree because there's so much stuff that's riding on this and there's already been so much money spent and all this kind of stuff right yeah yep and without feeling comfortable to tell anybody because there's so much shame right so you have to figure it out all on your own that's the messaging we're being taught and then we're wondering why so many people are struggling why we're seeing the graduation rate so much higher for certain genders or mm. races or populations of people. We're look if we look at the numbers, if we look at what's happening, the conversations being held, how have we not gotten rid of this idea that you should feel sh- ashamed or shameful for something that someone did to you that was outside of your control that systems in place have allowed to happen, who've known that this is what's happening and have continued to allow it to happen and will continue to allow it to happen. That that is not a new dynamic on campuses at all. And it's not going to be a dynamic that ends anytime soon, unfortunately, right? Which again, obviously kind of has a, as a direct beeline to mental health services and access on campus, right? And what does it mean in terms of who is accessible? What do counseling centers um, look like in terms of demographics, um, uh, in terms of number of clinicians there, um, in terms of the training of the clinicians there, are these counseling centers, you know, partnered with other safety offices? Are they partnered with psychiatry? Are they partnered with, um, you know, campus life and Greek-like serv- services, right? So so what does it also look like in terms of um, from top down what universities and what campuses are doing to make sure that there's kind of all eyes on these really perpetual um, issues that have been around for so, so long. And oftentimes counseling centers are, well, clinicians are underpaid, um, staff is overworked, the symptoms that are coming in are so much more acute um, than 15, 20 years ago. Um, uh, There's more kind of adjunct services, there's contract services happening, students are referred out after two or three sessions. There are all these things that factor in, right, to that in terms of people being able to access the care that they need for things that either happen on campus or kind of while they're there or life things, right, that also get activated um, during these four years. Yeah. And the wait times for these counseling services. So even if your school offers them, right, and there's a decent amount of funding that students really can access quality services, the wait times are substantial. If it is the beginning of the school year and Everyone needs services. Everyone needs some kind of support. There's a chance you may not even get into till midterms or maybe even finals. And then when you do not the next semester, right? I I work at counseling centers where they would say like, yeah, we just we don't have room for this. That's where they're going to refer you out. You might not be seeing this 
semester. The wait list is already building before before semester even starts. Right. Yeah. yeah. And what happens when someone needs to get in that needs to have, they never had access, right? Let's say someone never had access to any kind of mental health services before, has a diagnosable mental health condition that could help get disability so that they can have a fair chance at their classes, but they can't get in until after the first semester that they may have failed because they never had access to disability services. Or they, great, they have access for four sessions or six sessions, but they need continued care. And then they're told, okay, let's refer you out. But are the bus stops now stopping near a therapist's office? Yes. Or is the student health insurance covering this when it's off campus? Like how accessible is this, right? So referring somebody to a list of five people, sure. But are we looking at actual accessibility based on um, a person's fully lived circumstances, right? Whether that be in terms of transportation ability, whether that be in terms of money for buses, right? They have to add to whatever the cost might be, whether the service is um, covered by their, their insurance. Are you referring to providers, right, who are actually safe for this person to see based on whatever marginal marginalized identities they might hold, right? Are all the providers in the area white women providers, right? And this is a student who is a Black, Muslim, trans student, right, who probably needs somebody, right, who has either more education or more of a lived experience. What does that also mean in terms of accessibility, right? But counseling centers get to say, well, we referred you to five people. You should have found one. And it's just like, yeah, we're missing so much stuff within that, right? And all those things make it less likely for the student to even seek care elsewhere. So then they just try to, let's just keep trucking away. Let's just keep pushing through. That's what I've done my whole life anyway. Right. And it just makes it harder. And when those circumstances aren't taken into play, we're just looking at grades and just looking at output. We miss so much of the whole story. Yeah. It's really tough. It is. And again, this is all outside of academics. This is all all outside of the pressure that we think that college is. All outside of going in classes. We think going into college, or at least, okay, me and my friends, I will say, mm-hmm. our discussions going into college was that fear of the academic stress and pressure mm-hmm. of how many classes should we take? What if we get this teacher? What if we take organic chem? That building is like the trail tears or whatever. Everyone cries coming out of that. Like These are the things that we're thinking are going to be the most stressful pieces leading up to college. Then suddenly it's the social piece. Then suddenly it's this identity piece. And then suddenly it's so many other things that we're not talking about until we are kind of crumbled underneath it all, wondering what happened. This is supposed to be great. This is supposed to be great. And this is harder than I anticipated. And there's, there again, you can you can give students, you know, kind of a, a playbook on how to do this, right? But it's going to be still their lived experience um, because unanticipated things happen and or there's there's but so much you can prepare for to really understand what a college course load might look and feel like. And that depends on your major. That depends on the professor. It depends on like what the classroom community, right, is like. Um, so a lot of this is, a lot of that timing, right, is students trying to figure out what actually works for them, right? And that takes time. But across this time, we've got our first semester grades that are in, while a lot of students are really trying to figure out this total, total adjustment. And again, they still have family stuff going on. They still have peer stuff going on. There's still a whole bunch of transitional stuff that's happening. Um, but the output that oftentimes the universities look at is, well, could you manage all that stuff and get the right grades? 
right? And there's such a pressure again around fall break time, around midterms, around finals, right? So oftentimes we would see the more the, the more students who had anxiety, right, around anything related to, to school, we'd see them kind of show up more at the beginning of the semester, right? Um, the students that were navigating more depressive, um, and, and we would also see students that had um, more anxiety at the end of the semester because they would avoid. Um, we also saw that with depressive um, uh, symptoms, right, that a lot of those students would show up after midterms. They'd show up, you know, a few weeks before final saying, oh, no, I think I'm about to fail the semester. And it's just like, well, yeah. we're, we're, where have you been since September? Like what happened? School started in August, right? And sometimes it'd be, couldn't get in. Sometimes that would be, I didn't want this thing to be real. And then now it's two weeks out from the end of the semester. I'm at like a 45% grade and I need to get a 97, right? On this, right? So now I need some therapy around this. Um, sometimes what also happens is that as students get closer and closer to returning home for those five five weeks, right? For the winter um, uh, semester, now all this family stuff is coming up, right? They've now been able to experience life in this way and identity changes, um, figuring out social things, really kind of feeling this independence. But, oh, wait a minute. Remember all the bad stuff that's happening back home? Now they're thrust right back into, right, navigating a narcissistic parent or navigating substance abuse in their home, right? For a lot of students, um, the college experience is an escape right, from what their day-to-day -day life, right, was looking like. It's not just kind of this continuation of stuff. It's a way in which I am out of my home community. I'm out of my house. I'm away from sibling dynamics. I'm away from, um, you know, religious persecution. I'm up here, but I got to leave campus for five weeks. I can't stay here unless I pay or something like that. So oftentimes that would come up middle of semester, right, for students who had a number of different circumstances now they needed to return to and wouldn't have the clinician support because now they're in another state, right? So there's a whole buildup that can happen when we think about the October, top of November part of the semester, right? Um, that also comes up for a lot of students. Yes, and that's when midterms and finals are popping up. And a lot of classes, those are your only grades, right? Is your midterm and your final. What about people who aren't good test takers? What about people whose first language is not English? And yet all this pressure exists around an exam that probably is trick questions because teachers love to do that. Love when they do that so much. But all this pressure and stress is coming up around the time of the most stressful moment of your semester when all of a sudden you're going to have back-to-back -back midterms and then back-to-back -back finals. That's going to be your entire grade. GPA needs to be high enough that when you go home, your family's not disappointed and upset with you. And Why are we spending all this money? Why are we doing all this? for you to be playing around, right? It's all that messaging coming back. That's so overwhelming. That gets into your mind before you even take that exam. Yes, and all the things that add into, right, are kind of, um, yeah, that, that um, are additive towards social anxiety, towards test anxiety. Um, uh, again, that whatever's going on in terms of like peers, right? That's often a time of the semester where a lot of peers are maybe getting together and studying, but it's a lot of time in which peers isolate to study, right? Because they only kind of study on their own. So a lot of students are also just like, I need community right now. And everybody is isolated because it's midterms time, um, depending on what campus you're on and what's what's available on the campus in terms of sororities and fraternities, there's rush. There's just all this stuff that is going on at these different parts of the semester. And everybody's having this very unique experience. Unfortunately, this is also the time um, in terms of age um, where a lot of students might um, uh, start exhibiting their first symptoms, right, of um, 
an episode, whether it be a depressive episode, whether it be an anxious episode, whether it be a psychotic episode, a lot of times we might see that in the first semester of the year or the second semester of the year, given the buildup and stress. And now they're also navigating that, trying to understand what is happening with me. Something is happening, but because I don't recognize it or have the resources, I have the education to think about this as something related to my mental health. I'm just going to kind of keep going on. And that happens roommates because there, yeah, there's just so much stuff that can happen um, in those spaces that students need a lot more support um, around that. Oftentimes they quite frankly, just do not get, they do not receive it. Yes. And that lack of education toward mental health to know what symptoms, what warning signs to look out for. That blows my mind that we go through so many years of school learning. Yeah. Education. Learning, I mean, not to say like math isn't important or science, these things are important. But was me learning calculus more important than me learning how to recognize that I'm struggling and I need to reach out for support or the language to reach out for support? Because as women, we're taught not to complain. And then if we get to that point, we're overwhelmed and we quite cry, well, we're emotional. So now, how do I even figure it out that no, I'm not just emotional? I'm struggling. I need support. I don't know how to come up with the words or mm-hmm. my loved ones don't know how to validate me because they were never taught what, how to respond. Right. Mm-hmm. We, I, I still don't know how calculus was more important. Trigonometry or should I be learning social skills about how to yeah. navigate difficult things and how to, you know, how to practice vulnerability in our relationships, how to practice assertiveness, how to practice, you know, more appropriate communication online now these days, right? Trigonometry, sure, but there's one of those skills I'm using now and there's one of them that I'm not, right? So what would actually be helpful for me as a life skill before I enter, right, this environment where I've got to figure all this stuff out, oftentimes like on a whim. I'm in these relationships with my peers. I'm in these relationships with my professors and support services on campus. I'm in these communities. And sometimes I don't have the skills to navigate this. And I don't know where to get some of those skills. It's just people just, again, and that's most of life anyway, right? You're really just winging quite a lot of things. But what if you had um, some grounding in like some emotional education, right? So we think about dialectical behavioral therapy being in schools and how to regulate your emotions and your mood, um, how to engage interpersonally in an effective way, how to manage and tolerate distress in a different way. Uh, if you know that you do have, um, if you do hold a di- uh, mental health diagnosis um, in terms of what you need to take care of yourself, how to communicate that to other people when you are building relationships, right? That sometimes, you know, I struggle, really struggle with anxiety. These are the things that really help me, right? If we had that kind of information, education, and practice, a lot of this would look so, so different as students are transitioning into um, college as they are navigating those years in between and as they're exiting college. Yes, absolutely. And at these years where we're putting that messaging into kids' heads that you need to do well enough in high school that your GPA is high enough so that you can get into a good college, you need to score really high on this test so that way you can compete with other students because not only will other students have the same GPA as you and the same test scores, but now what extracurriculars are you doing? Are you holding leadership positions? Why are you not holding leadership positions? Why are you not on more sports teams? Oh, you were working a job instead of volunteering in your community? All of these small things that will that they tell us will dictate our entire future. Because if we don't get into the right college and get the right degree, then no one's going to want to hire us. 
this is the messaging we're teaching kids. And yet we're not teaching them how to cope with the stress that they're putting yeah. on us. Help me cope with all the anxiety that you are giving to me. Yes. That you are offering me, right. And it really teaches overperformance. It really kind of teaches this, you know, kind of hustle and this grind culture that you always have to be working. It really doesn't allow anyone, right, to embody a culture of rest and safety with yourself and safety in your community. It's all about doing, doing, doing. And we don't even have time to get on to how I feel about capitalism and mental health, right? But all of it is about doing, 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 doing more. And essentially the messaging is that nothing is ever enough because even if you get this grade, you need to hold leadership positions and you need to be a really, really good friend. And if you are romantically dating, you need to be able to do that well. And you still need to be able to connect it to people in your community when you go back home and, you know, support your parents. There's never going to be enough. And that is the the hamster wheel, right, that I think a lot of um, university and colleges, right, were, were thrust up within, right, in terms of capitalism, where it's just do, 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 do. There is no room for rest. And then you are blamed for not resting enough because now you have mental health issues, right, because you're burnt out, because you're depressed, because you're anxious, um, and now you're not doing all these other things well, and it's still always going to be your fault, right? That the burnout of all this is seen is seen as such an individual issue versus like, no, burnout is a systemic issue, right? And universities and academia certainly contributes, right, to burnout from freshman year through people who are going to be professors with PhDs, right? Certainly, certainly contributes to the output being more important than your lived experience in this, right? And you being able to attune to yourself and you being able to slow down and even know who you are and connect with these different different parts of your identity. What's really focused on is output, 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 output. Yes. All this focus on output. And a lot of times universities love to say that they focus and care about mental health. But if you look at their attendance policies, you miss one class, your grade goes down by 10%. So what happens when a student is struggling, when they are having a panic attack or anxiety attack and can't get to that exam or get to your class. What if they're dealing with a psychotic episode or a manic episode? We're not accounting for that. What if they are self-harming? We're not accounting for getting them support in the moments that they need. Instead, we're accounting for only that output so that we can rank higher on that scale of it looks like our students are all succeeding. Meanwhile, there's so much breaking down. But We've taught people to be ashamed of their mental health, so they're not going to talk about it. So we're going to allow this system to continue and they're going to get burnt out, but we're going to make them feel like they're the only ones going through it. Because if we talk about it, then we have to make changes because we can see whose fault it is or not whose fault it is, but what's contributing to it. Don't want to say it's entirely the university system's fault. There's so many things we need to work on, but one of the main contributing factors then they're recommended to take a leave of absence and you've got to step away and kind of take care of yourself versus really looking at systemically, what are we offering and providing in a holistic way, right? That allows students to actually thrive here. Right? And oftentimes that goes back to separate from academics, right? Separate from all these kind of performative things, right? How safe do people's identities feel on campus? Do they have groups, right? That they kind of see themselves in? Do they have, you know, professors and support staff, um, that they can see themselves and that actually can provide right a sense of safety for that, a sense of encouragement um, when things do get a little hard uh, for them. But if we can understand and kind of offer some flexibility and some agility to the experience of college, then there's a wider range of how people can experience this versus you got four ways in which you can do college well, right? Um, before you are shamed and judged and ostracized and all these kinds of things um, that might also happen right to you all there. 
Yes. And it's so, so frustrating that we're not having these conversations with students that we don't see. They like to love to bring in speakers, but the speakers aren't necessarily on mental health and what we can do to support each other. And it's, I remember the year that I ended up withdrawing during my first master's, ending up in a psych ward, the fight it took to get that medical withdrawal so that I could get my tuition refunded because I needed that for next semester. They wanted to charge me $6,000 while I'm already paying God knows how much in the psych ward because my insurance doesn't want to cover that. And then the ambulance bill to get me there, right? It's like, I'm at a breaking point when my goal is to be able to get back to school, to be able to continue my education. And you are trying to make it very difficult for me. Was I in a position that if they really kept that tuition, would that prevent me from going back? No, because I wasn't the one paying for it. My father was, and I'm very blessed and lucky for that. And I will say that for the rest of my life. However, that's not the case for so many people. A lot of people rely on loans and they can only get so much because our credit comes in into play with that. And how do we have credit yet at 17, 18 years old? Let me know, right? So people need that $5,000 that's going to turn into 10, 15,000 with the interest rates. They need that money. And yet we make every accommodation so difficult. They give you a bill, they ask, how are you? Yes. The first thing that comes is the bill, right? And financial aid and mental health is a whole other issue, right? Where students oftentimes might need to leave, right? Campus, because when they think about the bill, it's coming up for the spring semester. They might've been there on an academic scholarship, right? And can't afford to not be here on an academic scholarship. Like all these things factor yeah. into this pressure to perform, right? In a certain way, because the, um, the diversity, right? Of my experience isn't really allowed, right? At this institution, they don't have the, the system in, in place to really allow for a wide range of experiences. Although they say, that they do, but oftentimes they don't. They don't have the money. They don't have the infrastructure um, to actually create a space in which all students can thrive. It's really for a particular number of students to thrive. And then if the rest of you can make it, great. But it's really made for these particular set of students to thrive. And in 2023, there is no excuse for that to be that to be it, right? We Maybe years ago, no one was having these conversations. People didn't know better and these systems were put in place. Whatever, like justification people want to use for how it started give me your justification go for it but you've had so many years to see you've had decades more than decades we know now yes there's no excuse for ignorance at this point right we know and we're still not making changes so universities if you're listening let's step it up you're listening without being defensive right now. And we didn't even, I don't even think we're going to get into the whole affirmative action repeal with all these different universities and how that affects things as a whole, but it, it factors into everything that we're talking about. So yes. Yes. As we are wrapping up, can you offer some piece of advice or encouragement to college students who are worried about this pressure and stress and just don't know where to start? Um, you know, the, the, mm, there's many things I can say. Um, Community is one of the most important um, experiences to have regardless of where you are. So the earlier you can find your people and find your community and really work towards that, um, that's going to be really, really beneficial to you. Um, I always say this. I know it's hard for students to take in and depending on the, the time of the semester, but your mental health is more important than the grade. It really is. I promise you it is. And I know because oftentimes my students will say, yeah, but my grade factors into my mental health. So I need the grade in order to feel better about myself. But 
your mental health is more important than your grades. If you notice that things are changing or shifting and it's been a few weeks, you are allowed, you have permission, right, to seek care, whether that be community care, whether that be professional care, whether that be family care, you have permission to seek care at any point, right, in which you want it. Do not wait. Do not wait. Do not wait. Yes. Do not wait. I I don't know why we wait so long to reach out for support. You deserve to feel supported when you need it, before you need it, before you need it. You deserve to feel supported. You do not need to wait. And when you don't feel great, you just you deserve support across the spectrum of how you feel. Thank you so much for listening to Normalize the Conversation. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review. This podcast is an initiative of inspiring my generation. Focusing on normalizing the conversation, bringing education and awareness to the forefront, and amplifying global voices to spark change and hope. Inspiring My Generation is a 501c3 nonprofit organization on a mission towards suicide prevention through awareness, conversation, education, and support. Connect with us on Instagram at inspiringmygeneration and visit our website inspiringmygeneration.org to learn more about our work and how you can make a difference.